My name is Wizzy Brown. And I'm Bryant McDowell. And I'm Molly Keck. And we're with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Department of Entomology, and this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. Welcome back to Bugs by the Yard. Since it's springtime, we decided that we are going to talk about red imported fire ants today. They seem to be, I know in my area, popping up a lot more and you know we're supposed to be getting some rain, so I'm sure that mounds are gonna be going crazy soon because once we get that rainfall, that water will saturate into the soil and then the fire ants start building mounds to get the majority of their colony up out of the soil. And so they tend to be more noticeable then. Are you guys getting a lot of fire ants? Yes, we had a good rainstorm last night. Springs usually a little wetter. And I have noticed just walking the dogs around outside, the mounds are in between the cracks of the sidewalk and up along the driveways and just popping up everywhere. Yeah, I feel like I never saw them go away <laughs> up here. <laughs> like they've been pretty persistent. Since Except yeah. for when we had the ice storm, you know, then that's true. Then we didn't see any, but yeah, <laughs> no, no, you're right. <laughs> and it was like the we, week after we had, yeah, 30 degree fluctuation in temperature yes. and rainfall. And, <laughs> I love Texas. Yeah, we didn't. I mean, it did get cold, but it didn't really stay cold. It was up and down. So those fire ants were definitely active um, quite a bit. They probably are. (laughs) So red imported fire ants are not native to Texas. I think everybody is well aware of that. They are from South America, brought here and introduced into the United States accidentally, but they have been here for quite a long time. And I don't think that they're going to be going away anytime soon. They are reddish brown on the head and thorax area. And then the bulbous part or gaster of their abdomen is going to be a dark brown to black color. And I'm sure everyone that lives in Texas, unless you are brand spanking new, is well aware that fire ants are capable of stinging. And that's kind of their their claim to fame, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So fire ants are going to bite and sting. They'll bite essentially just to kind of get a hold of you. And then they will continue to sting until you brush them off. And the sting is what is actually causing the issue. I know everybody tends to say, oh, I got bitten by a fire ant, which is not inaccurate, but the bite is not what is causing the problem. It's going to be the sting. So do you guys, what happens when you get stung? I have kind of the quintessential reaction that I'd say the majority of people have where I get that little pustule that forms that itches and is painful, localized, and then it goes away after a week or so. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much the same unless it's your first time near fire ants and you you do the oops, I stepped in it and didn't realize that I was there. And then you get covered in like 50 bites. Stings, stings. Yeah, that's so, oh my gosh backtrack that delete it (laughs) (laughs) well you got bit but you also got stung so the sting is going to be the problem so that you got that what immediate painful burning sensation reddening in the area and then you get that nice little pustule that forms and I don't know about you guys but I always scratch I cannot not scratch them And when you do scratch them and break them open, you do have to worry about possible secondary infection. Like if you 
I don't know, have gunk underneath your fingernails or something, then you can get bacteria in there. So do be careful. The other thing that you need to be aware of is that there are some people that are allergic to fire ant venom and they can have a more severe reaction where a sting can cause whatever that area to have more swelling than normal, or it could even lead to anaphylaxis depending on the person. So some people, if you, especially if you're like a pest control operator and you're listening to this, there are people that can be severely allergic to this, that they are going to need essentially zero fire ants in their landscape. So it may not be unreasonable for those people to ask for that based upon their allergies. So fire ants, Bryant, do you want to talk about the fire ant mounds? I think a lot of people who do get fire ants in their yard, maybe will see one, one mound and they'll think of like a spot treatment, right? When in reality, it's in the ground where these fire ants are. And like we mentioned earlier, as that soil gets moist, um, maybe after a hard rain or something, you're going to see these little mounds pop up. They're pushing up all of the soil and whatnot, the brood, all of the colony up out of the ground. Um, and it's kind of a mechanism for survival given where they're from um, in the Amazonian flood basin area. Um, I think it's like what, Southern, like Brazil, Argentina, maybe mechanisms for temperature control in the colony is one reason why they are doing that protection of the brood. Fire ants do a really neat, unique thing. I should say the red imported fire ant where they have adapted the ability to raft. So when there's a lot of water and it's in a flood zone area, they will push all of the colony up out of the soil and essentially make a floating uh, raft of, of live ants. And to my knowledge, they can live in that raft for quite some time until they eventually, and I guess we're talking more in their native range right now, until they eventually you know, bump into um, a suitable house. Uh, what am I trying to say? Dry area. Yeah. There you go. And a fence. Right. Where they can then forage for food and continue the cycle of their colony. You know, but that also plays into them definitely in Texas because we do have a lot of flooding conditions in Texas a lot of the time. So this can move fire ants into new locations or locations that they haven't been in. I have seen them in drainage ditches moving through. Oh, wow. That rafting is kind of unique to them or to ants in general, isn't it? Because most of the time, other species of ants can't move across water barriers. We'll keep them contained. But for fire ants, water doesn't stop them. Isn't that unique to fire ants um, because other ants don't do it? Or are there other ants that do do it? I think it's just the red imported fire ant. I thought so too. And if it isn't, there's very few that do it. Mm -hmm. So mounds in open sunny areas, usually disturbed habitats, no centralized opening, which mm -hmm. that can differentiate them from other ants that we have in Texas that will build mounds. Yeah. When you kick them or you mess it up, I always say they go everywhere. They come out from everywhere. They don't come out from a single hole. Mm -hmm. And they're the only ant, I believe, that likes to go up vertical surfaces to get after you, as opposed to other ants that will go horizontal to get away from you. They're just incredibly aggressive. So the pillowy, fluffy mounds with no hole, plus the ability to sting and leave that pustule usually 
is your two good characteristics that tell you you got into fire ants. Yeah, not that you want to poke the mound to right and have them sting you to see if that's <laughs> what they are. Although you can use that method, not that I would recommend it. Just stick a stick in it and see if they crawl up that stick. And if they do, oh, you've got fire ants, not something else. Because there are some, like most of the time, fire ant mounds are pretty obvious, but sometimes they're small. Uh, maybe they haven't pushed all that soil above the surface quite so much. And so they, there are some lookalikes that they might be misidentified for. And, as, you know, we look at fire ants all the time. So we can see a mound and we know without a doubt that that's what it is. But I can understand that some people who don't look at ants all the time would maybe have a hard time figuring out if it's them or somebody else. The other thing about the mounds that I just wanted to mention is you might notice that these mounds pop up in between the sidewalk cracks or the side of your driveway. And you think, well, where was that before? So I always kind of describe it that what you see is the tip of the iceberg and what's happening under the ground is very deep, expansive. It can be really wide. And if you Google Walter Schinkel, who is an entomologist at a university of Florida, I think, right. Or some, I think so. I think university of Florida Schinkel T S C H I Inkle. And, uh, he, uh, he's known for doing some really cool, he would melt aluminum. What would he melt? I, so I think that's it was right. some, some metal, some metal, and he would pour it into those mounds. So it would go through all the galleries and the, the tubes, and then he would excavate it. And so you can see from those just how extensive and huge these mounds are. So it can pop up. Where was it before it was beside your driveway? Well, it was under the driveway most likely. And you're just seeing what they wanted to push up above the ground. And we also need to probably mention, depending on where you are located in Texas, fire ants are going to look different. They're mounds. So depending on the soil texture and that sort of thing, mounds can look different because if you're talking about fire ant mounds in my area, which is the Austin area versus Lubbock, they're going to look completely different. You don't really have those very big, distinct mounds in some places. And it's also in some times of the year, the other thing that we probably need to mention is that fire ants don't go away in winter and summer. They are still here. It's just that we may not see the mounds as much. And that's typically because we have cooler temperatures or we have really, really hot temperatures and those fire ants are going to be further down in the ground. And so they're not really up building that mound at that point in time. I hear that all the time. Drought kills fire ants, makes them go away. Well, they're still there. They're just not out where you are. And I mean, I guess that's a form of going away, but as soon as you get well, that but rain, they're still foraging, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's not like if you go and have a picnic in the grass that you not encounter the fire ants, unfortunately. Right. You're just not going to sit on a mound. Yeah. Right. Or mow one over, which mm -hmm. is what I usually do. It's very satisfying when you mow them over, isn't it? It is, but I always have this probably unrealistic fear that the fire ants are going to like fly all over the place yeah. and get on me and sting. <laughs> just like, I think I that's know. actually probably pretty realistic. <laughs> I always thought it was satisfying to dig the mound out whenever we would drip them in grad school and just like wait and watch them all push the brood up. I, I love doing that. Okay. So Brian, you just mentioned dripping and digging. There are specific ways that you do what Bryant just said. So do you want to tell us how that process was? And not that we recommend homeowners to do this, but 
this is how we collect fire ants in the field. Probably wouldn't get a whole colony, but um, this was on like a pecan orchard with hundreds of mounds. And so, yeah, we would, we would wait until it's warmed up. They've got all of the brood up in the mound. So we're talking about like above the surface of the soil. So what you do is you can take like a five gallon bucket. We usually would coat it in talc powder, baby powder. um, And that creates kind of like a non-slip surface where the fire ants can't get out. So you can take a shovel. You're going to literally dig out the top half of that mound. Uh, It's got all the brood and whatnot in it. Take it back to the lab. I believe we would let them sit kind of reform galleries and whatnot in that dirt. And then the next day we do what we call dripping. And so you can set a constant, very slow drip into that bucket. Careful not to disrupt the baby powder that you've got on the side. Otherwise you'll have fire ants escaping all over your lab from experience. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, you just, I mean, that would be like a at least a couple hours that you would let that run. And what it does is they'll push up all of the brood like they would naturally um, to form that raft. And then you can create kind of an artificial nest for them in a pre-made nest box, if you will. And you just kind of scoop them out with a spatula and very, very quickly with the spatula. Yes, very quickly. I will say there's, it's so satisfying, which I would recommend double gloving and you're always going to want to wear baby powder. So those of you with sweaty hands like me, if you're ever <laughs> struggling to get on gloves, you can just, you know, put some baby powder on your hands. You can, I would do double glove and then more baby powder on top of that. And you can literally pick up, you know, the the colony with your hands. And it's, it's such an interesting feeling. Wait, wait, with your hands, like just in the gloves. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah just like I would do it too. Up and plop them in. Um, yeah. Would not very happen. fast. You have to do it very fast, very fast and you can't have to, you can't get a lot of water with the, true. with the ants yeah. either. True. True. I will say, um, I'm curious to know what does a fire ant colony smell like to y'all? Ooh, yes. I don't know how to describe it, but you're absolutely right, Bryant. Cause they have a specific odor, like very earthy. I'm not sure I can describe it. I just know it in my nose. I like, I, know I it cannot is. say that I have ever smelled no? necessarily specifically a fire ant colony. I could tell you all sorts of cockroach smells, but that's because you did. Yeah. You did cockroaches, but I know, I know, I know what you're talking about, right? What, well, what do you have like a word to describe it? Um, to me, they smell like a molasses, like a, like a syrupy smell. Huh. Um, yeah. But earthy, you're right. Earthy. Sweet. Like yeah. They, they definitely smell better than like a German cockroach uh, colony, I will say. Or, hey, oh don't you knock my babies. Oh, no. Those are. I mean, it doesn't smell. <laughs> it doesn't smell good, but they have. I used to call it the fire ant B.O. They just had their own odor, um, you know, and I wonder what it is that's coming off of them that we're smelling because they even had it without dirt. You know, it was yeah. without the soil. They smelled like this. It was them. Yeah. Just like the nest boxes that we were talking about that you would have basically artificial nests in, in a lab. I hate the smell of like IHOP and Denny, like that, <laughs> that breakfast smell makes me so nauseous. And does it remind you of fire? Yes. Ants, yeah. Yeah. No, it's the same feeling. So I'd be working. <laughs> I, I took care of like 300 fire ant colonies uh, in my undergrad. And yeah, that was the worst part was the, the smell <laughs> of the fire. Oh, ants. wow. They do have a smell. That's so funny. That was the worst part, not getting bitten and stung. 
I love it. That's fantastic. We should probably also say that fire ants, while they typically will form their mounds, you know, I said in open sunny areas, they can be like Molly said, under a sidewalk or a driveway or whatever. And then their mounds, you start seeing that soil kind of spill over, but they can also get into potted plants or other protected locations. If you have raised beds where you create a vegetable garden, they can also get in there. And if you think about potted plants or raised beds, those are great areas for fire ants or any other ant because they're typically getting regular water and they are an enclosed, somewhat protected location for those ant colonies. And so, you know, they're taking advantage of that space. So they're going to try to use whatever they can. Should we talk about monogyne versus polygyne and why certain colonies are over like vast areas? Most colonies are polygyne anyway throughout Texas. So yeah, it's, I guess, just one of those things that are promoting invasion success. And for those of you wondering what we're talking about, monogyne colonies have a single queen, whereas polygyne have multiple. So the colonies that we have here in Texas have multiple queens. And so that tends to give us a higher mound density in those areas where they're located. Mm-hmm. So you tend to see a lot more mounds popping up. And can make them harder to control because if you don't kill all the queens, then you don't kill that colony. And if they have multiple queens laying mm-hmm. thousands of eggs a day, then they quickly, you kill a portion of it and the, the rest that are still alive quickly take over and kind of replace what you killed. Take a trip back to the 90s when I would always see like the fire ant commercials where it's like kill the queen, you know, get rid of the the colony. And so I grew up thinking, oh, yeah, you know, there's one queen that you've got to kill. It's kind of like a hive situation. And then, you know, you realize, oh, they're all just nest mates. And those colonies can range quite a distance. Well, and it can also play into, you know, if we're going to go into control and management strategies next it also can play into what you're going to do for those control methods, because especially at this time of year, we have our ant colonies that are well-developed that are going to be larger mound building because there's more ants in that. But we also have ones that are going to be smaller. And if you are doing individual mound treatments versus some sort of a broadcast treatment, it's going to be hard to find those smaller mounds that are just starting out. And so it may be that you don't necessarily get everybody at that point. So you do have to take that into consideration. Something that I was actually teaching about a couple of weeks ago is what is an invasive species. And Wizzy, I think you mentioned, so it was like the late thirties, early forties that fire ants were introduced to the U S in like Mobile, Alabama, I believe. So we didn't get an official definition, an official federal definition of what is an invasive species until 1999. And so if you, if you really think about that, that's, that's a long time, right. For people to just kind of be unaware to begin with. And so around that time, biocontrol was one of those things that were, that were sought after and scientists thought, okay, maybe we can find some sort of natural enemy from their native range, the S Invicta, the red imported fire ant. And so they you know, went over to South America and found a specific forward fly, a decapitating fly. And we'll probably go into this a little bit more, but I don't remember how many species are now introduced to the U.S. 
I think it's upwards of like five or six, six right? Yeah, it? I thought it was yeah. like six. Mm-hmm. So there are these little parasitoid flies that will essentially lay an egg in the fire ant. The larvae will develop and move its way up into the ant's head where essentially the, the fire ant becomes decapitated. The larvae will then pupate in the head and emerge. It's a pretty neat tactic. I think people, when they hear about biocontrol, they kind of get misled and think, okay, we're going to introduce one natural enemy into this introduced range and hope that it takes care of our problem. But we have to think, you know, there's, and we've reiterated this many times, it's, it's a, it's a community. There's many, many natural enemies that are playing into keeping that population at bay in its native range, whether that be predators, fungi, bacteria, all of those things. And so taking one of them and and introducing them to the invaded range Yes, it's going to have some sort of impact. Is it going to get rid of the entire population? Not necessarily. As far as chemical control, we talked about earlier the whole mound thing and distribution and whether you're doing something broadcast or individual mound treatments. So those are two big approaches that we have. You can either broadcast something over an entire area to manage your fire ants The other option is going and looking for each individual mound that you see and treating those mounds individually. And I'm kind of of the mind, I mean, I know what I use at my house, but it's really going to be dependent upon how you want things to be treated, what product you're using. I mean, there's a lot of things that play into this, how quickly you want those fire ants gone. Um, That can all, whether whether you're a homeowner or a pest control professional, um, these are all going to play into the decision as to how you are choosing what fire ant product you're going to use. You also need to think about equipment. What do you have to apply whatever it is and do you need to purchase something? So I know at my house, I do broadcast fire ant baiting with a handheld spreader twice a year. And we're, we're going to go into community wide in a minute. And my, I have my whole entire neighborhood treating for fire ants at the same time. And we'll talk about why that's a good idea a little bit later. But when you are using a fire ant bait and you're broadcasting it over your whole entire property, you are essentially allowing those ants to pick up the fire ant bait, take it back to the colony as a food source, and then they share it with those other ants. So you don't have to go around and find every single fire ant. You're essentially letting them do the work for you. And so it's not only taking you less to do that because you don't have to search out all those fire ant mounds, but you also, if you read and follow the labeled instructions, you're going to be putting out less chemical than if you were treating each individual mound. So broadcasts can happen either with a fire ant bait or there are also broadcast contact chemicals that you can use. Uh, those are usually like some sort of a pyrethroid for homeowners. If you have a pest control company do it, it would either be a pyrethroid of some sort or a fipronil product. Those have to be watered in. So with the pest control company, they have options to have other products that homeowners may not have access to. But when you're dealing with those broadcast chemicals that are contacts, 
those have to be watered into the soil. And so you generally want to do those really early in the year. That way you can get them watered in, they bind with the soil. And then when those fire ants start working the soil, they'll come into contact with them and that can help to kill off the population. And depending on which one you're going with, they're going to have longer residuals, which means that they're going to last for a longer period of time or a shorter period of time based on which one you're choosing. That goes for the broadcast. The individual mound treatments, there are dust, there's liquids. You can treat individual mounds with baits. You can do granulars. There's a ton of stuff, but you're essentially there finding each individual fire ant mound, treating it according to the product that you are using that label and making sure that you follow those instructions. So it's really going to vary depending upon what particular product you're treating the mound with. So I do prefer using baits like you do, Izzy, but sometimes you just want to spot treat those, you know, like if you have a small area and you only have a handful of mounds that are really easy to get to, then you can do individual mound treatments and you can use really anything that you want to, you know, your options are liquid drenches, dusts, granules, or baits. Usually when you're doing an individual mound treatment, you're, you, you're wanting it to get a quick knockdown. So it's either going to be a drench, a dust, or maybe a granule. Drenches are a product that's usually mixed with a gallon of water and it's dumped over the mound. And the risk with that, like I mentioned about how those mounds can be real deep and real wide, you may not get to the whole entirety of the mound and then three feet over it pops up and you think, well, I didn't do anything. I just moved it. And that's not necessarily true. You killed a portion of it, but you just didn't kill all of it. Dusts are it's a little dust formulation that you sprinkle about a tablespoon or so, whatever the label says on the mound. And as they come up, they pick it up and they carry it back down and they spread it to everybody else. And sometimes depending on how big the mound is, it seems like the dusts are a little bit more effective because they get it all around as opposed to the drenches, they have to kind of dislodge and move that soil and it may not get deep enough, but it's kind of the same thing with both of them. You may not get that product all throughout the colony. And so it might pop up a few feet away. And then granules can be just applied directly to the mound and watered in baits, the same thing. The trick with baits is that they don't look for food on top of their mound. So you want to use, you want to apply it around the perimeter of the mound. So as they forage for food, they'll pick it up, accept it as food and take it into the mound. And that's something I see people making a mistake with a lot of times. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The other big thing people make a mistake in when they use baits on the mound is they water it in and you don't want to ever do that because that's not good. It doesn't taste good. So they're not going to eat it that way. And that goes into time of application as well. So if you're applying it when it's super dewy early in the morning and the ants are not foraging, you know, that may not be the best time to then apply your baits. Well, then also time of year. Oh, yes. If you're worried about knowing if they're foraging and looking to accept food, how do you have a trick for figuring that out? Looking for, oh, are you talking about my hot dogs? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I told potato chips. I told a room full of like like 150 pest management professionals this, and I was shunned, but I told them, I was like, hot dogs are your best friend. And I guess potato chips too, but I always use marking flags and hot dogs. I know Molly and I, we've done it before, whenever we were just monitoring af- before and after bait treatments to see if maybe native ants had kind of re-colonized the area. 
But no, that's a really great, if you ever want to find out what ants are in your area, just to monitor, you can slice up hot dogs into little like quarter inch pieces and, and, you know, even smaller than that, just little tiny slices. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just didn't, yeah. Don't go put a whole hot dog on like a, yeah. like a skewer situation. Um, <laughs> leave it for 20, 30 minutes, come back and, and you'll, you'll get a good idea of, of what's there in the area. Yeah. And usually it is fire ants. So if they're on those hot dogs, it means they're foraging, whatever is out there is foraging for food. So it's a good time to apply the bait because they're readily looking for food to take back to the mound. And to just don't leave them out for your dogs like Molly. <clears throat> oh, did I do that? Yeah. The summer that we were collecting your, <laughs> your dogs ate our hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's when, yeah, that's when I had my lab and she was a heifer. <laughs> I have problems with the the neighborhood monitoring that I do because it's like I leave the hot dogs out. I stick them in vials, but I mark them with flags. And sometimes I come back and it's, I don't know if it's a squirrel. I don't know if it's a dog, whatever, but yeah, the vial is hot. How funny they have to really try, don't they? To get it out of a vial, (laughs) a little tiny, I imagine a little tiny lizard in a knoll (laughs) reaching its little (laughs) tiny hand in and pulling it out. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I was picturing like a raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> Those cute little arms. What about mating flights? Did we talk about mating flights at all? We did not. Go for it. I, I don't know much about it. I just know. <laughs> well, people that have pools usually know about it because yes. they seem to get all over. Like if you have, we used to have a problem with the queens would land on our floats in the pool and they will bite and the bite actually does kind of hurt because they have pretty big mandibles but usually before a good rainstorm or after a good rainstorm in 100 percent humidity the fire ant alates or reproductives the males and the soon-to-be queens who have wings will take flight mate in the air do they mate with do the females mate with multiple males or do they just mate with one for a long time i thought it was just oh no i thought it was just one is it just one? I don't know. I know with bees, they'll mate with multiple males. So they have genetic diversity, but anyway, they'll mate with a boyfriend and then drop to the ground, drop their wings. And people will see them like crawling across like big fat ants crawling across sidewalks with big, long abdomens. And they look different than say carpenter ants or what people will call wood ants. They just, they have a different look to them, but it's always usually right after a rainstorm. And if you see them step on those, because those are Queens that are looking to dig into the soil, lay eggs and start a new colony. So the more often you smush them, then the less Queens will be out there to make new colonies. So you, you mentioned the pool thing that was whenever we wanted to go and collect another form of collecting, instead of going and digging up a whole mound is collecting these mated queens and so we would go out to parking lots on AM campus and it was told to me that the queens will kind of get confused and they think that it's like a large area of water and they'll land there and so you could just go and pick up 20 30 50 queens in a day how long would it take before they started laying eggs and built up a pretty decent sized colony? And would you collect multiple, put them all together? So it would already be a polygyne colony. No, all separate. And then the, they did testing after the fact, but I would say they laid eggs and had brood within like five weeks or so. Like it was pretty quick. 
Um, oh. Once you get that first, because at that point, the queen is doing all the work, right? Once you get that first set of, of eggs, then the workers are kind of just taking care of everything else. It did take a while to reach like substantial numbers, I will say. Yeah. Within eight months, we had, I don't know, I would say like three test tubes full of ants. That seems like a whole lot of work when you could just go dig up a mound. Yeah, I think they wanted the more queen diversity to test. I see. Yeah, there was a purpose for it. Okay, so for management, we talked about broadcasts. We talked about individual mound treatments. And then there is a hybrid of the two, which is the Texas two and that essentially is using a bait and you're broadcasting that twice a year, typically in the spring and in the fall. And you know, I always get people, when, when do I do it? Whenever you have fire ants. For me, it's usually March, April, and then September, October. This is just because that's usually when the weather is cooperating. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we say spring and fall, not for really yeah. any other reason, except that they're up above the ground looking for food, yeah. foraging more readily. That's the first step of our Texas two-step. And then the second is following that up with individual mound treatments for any mounds that pop up in between that spring, fall time. So you don't want to do your broadcast bait in the spring and in the fall, and then immediately follow that up with individual mound treatments, you got to give it usually, you know, I'm going to say at least two to four weeks to work, depending on what product you're choosing. And I'm just going to say, cause I get this all the time. What fire ant baits work? They all work. Yes. All of the fire ant baits work. It's just a matter of getting it out there when the fire ants are foraging, making sure that you're following the labeled instructions and that you're not getting those fire ant baits wet. So the fire actually pick them up and take them back for feeding to other ants in the colony. So they all work. It's just a matter of how quickly you're going to see results and how long those results to last. Yes, I agree. And then for individual mound treatments, Molly talked about pretty much all sorts of stuff. With mine, I usually have like one fire ant mound that might pop up in the summertime. And if I do that, I do the boiling water method where I just, I boil water and I dump it on the mound. And I usually do, you know, the teapot boiling probably two or three times on the mound. And I start on the and push it to the inside. It does kill the vegetation. And that tends to work best after a rain when the fire ants are up out of the soil and closer to the top. But that's, you know, just because I only generally have fire ant bait at my house. <laughs> yeah. You made a good point really quick about the boiling water method. I, I've had a lot of questions about fire ants in my garden. Um, so what is approved for fire ant control in an area where you are harvesting so you're talking about like a vegetable garden. Yeah. Yeah. If you like a bait, spinosad is labeled for in the vegetable garden. Yes. There are also individual mound treatment products that you can use. I think that the delimonene drench, which is like an orange oil drench, that one you can use in vegetable gardens. But that is also a really strong herbicide. So keep it away from the plants. Like don't put it right next to the roots of your tomatoes. And then the other thing you can treat around the outside of your vegetable garden with 
essentially any fire ant bait. Don't use it directly in the garden, but you can treat around the outside of it. That is still okay to use the label or label wise. Yes. There we go. That's what I wanted to say. (laughs) Not going to hurt your vegetables or your tomatoes or anything like that. It's still going to be safe for you to consume if they take it back into their mound. So some products either weren't tested by the chemical company. And so they weren't EPA approved or asked to be approved to be used inside of a vegetable garden. That probably takes more testing, more money. And they didn't, you know, they meant for their product to be used in the lawn, but it doesn't mean that you can't apply it right outside the vegetable garden, just not meant to be dumped inside of it, but it's still safe to do. And you don't have to worry about it being harmful to what foods you're going to consume. All right. So I think the other thing that I want to cover is community-wide fire ant management and why that may be a good idea. It may take some organization on the front end, getting everyone in your community to get on the same schedule for fire ant baiting, but it can help reduce the number of fire ants because essentially what you're doing here is the larger of an area that you treat with a broadcast bait at the same time, the further those fire ant boundaries are going to be pushed out and then it's going to take longer for them to reinvade. So if you just treat your yard, then your neighbor's fire ants can start moving into your yard. But if you treat your yard and you treat your surrounding neighbor's yards, so go knock on the door, say, hey, can I treat your yards for fire ants? They're most likely going to say yes. That's going to push those fire ants even further away from your house. And so it's going to make it longer a period of time for them to get back into your yard. So if you can get your whole entire neighborhood on board, then that's a larger space and it's going to take even more time for those fire ants to come back. And it's not that I'm saying you're going to eradicate fire ants. That's not going to happen, but it's a way to manage fire ants in a larger area. And generally that's going to reduce the populations of those fire ants in the area. So it's a good way of managing fire ants in larger space areas by cooperating with your neighborhood. And you can either, you know, get volunteers together. You can work with your homeowners association and see if that's something that they want to get involved with and hire a pest control company to come out and treat the yards and common areas. I mean, there's a variety of ways that it can work. And if you are listening to this and you want more information on this for your neighborhood, please feel free to shoot us an email. We'll give you that at the end of the show in the show notes. And, you know, we can get you that information. I have a question, Wizzy. When you do, have you ever done, uh, you say treat, you treat in the spring and in the fall. Do you ever go out in the meantime to see like in the front yards or something, just eyeball how often you have mounds that pop up and I wonder, have you like checked that over time that, you know, after we did this for three years, we hardly ever see any popping up during that time, or that's probably too hard to do all all year long. Well, I, I've been doing the community-wide fire management program in my neighborhood since what, 2005. And so it's been, I think what, this is 18 years that we're doing it, which is bananas. 
So I do a pre-check with the, the hot dogs. So I'll do that usually on the day of the baiting where the company's out. So I'm getting that baseline. And then about six weeks later, I will check the fire ant and I'm counting mounds in specific front yards. Again, the same yards and same locations that I've been monitoring this whole entire time. I have an area that is across from the neighborhood that doesn't get treated that I use as my control to compare it to. So I do that both in spring and fall following those treatments. But then, you know, I walk my dog essentially every day in the neighborhood. And so I kind of have a idea of what's going on. And we, we do have fire ants, but they are at a lesser level and a more reasonable level than they are before we started this program. And people generally are able to go and do stuff in their yards and it's not as much of a problem as it was. And I mean, there's always going to be people of differing views depending on how they feel about pest control and that sort of thing. And so you do have to work with those people and talk to those people. And I have experience with that too. So if you have questions, let me know. Okay. So hopefully you learned something about fire ants. Now is a great time to pick a treatment and do that treatment in your yard because we do have fire ants popping up. So keep that in mind, get out there, get some sort of fire ant treatment going, and we will catch you next time on Bugs by the Yards. Howdy to our listeners and fellow bug nerds. We want to take the time to tell you to check out our show notes on each episode and for more information and supplemental materials on the topics covered. Additionally, if you have any questions or recommendations for what you may want to learn more about, you can send us an email to www.bugsbytheyard at gmail.com. If you enjoy this content and would like to learn more about structural pests that may invade your home, check out our other podcasts, Unwanted Guests. Brought to you by Texas A&M University AgriLife Extension and the Department of Entomology. As always, please subscribe or follow the podcast feed to make sure you never miss an episode.